south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 239, covering the week of November 16th through November 20th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page where you can get all kinds of cool stuff. We've got lectures, videos, all kinds of stuff on our YouTube page. And of course, you can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition written by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. You'll also get our Daily Dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday. It's a great way to keep up with the Institute and a great way for us to keep up with you. So it's free of charge. Get the book, get on the email list, and stay in touch with us. You can click on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. That is a great way to help the Institute. We exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, if you like our website, if you like our conferences, which I'm going to talk about in a second, it's a great way to help us out. It is tax-deductible to the full extent of law, every donation you make. So consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. Also click on that Shop tab. You can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. And Christmas is coming up. Makes a great Christmas gift. So a lot of great ways to support the Institute and also advertise the Institute at the same time. I wanted to mention the conferences. We had a great conference in October, but now we're doing Zoom conferences. So we're going to do these quite often. Our first one is coming up in December, December 15th. Now, it's almost sold out, and it, by the time this podcast is published, it probably will be sold out. Uh, we had 100 tickets, and we sold them out pretty quickly. So, But we are going to be doing more of these, and there's going to be more opportunities for different kinds of conferences, and we're going to have something really cool on the back end with this as well. So we haven't, I, we haven't set that up yet, but it'll be there. So if you miss the conference, no big deal. You're going to be able to get it. So... Uh, just look out for that. Uh, of course, your donations help us do those things too. So we've got a lot of great things going on for 2021. It is the end of the year. If you're making your tax plans now, consider a donation to the Institute. Click on that Amazon Smile button while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org. That's a great way to support the Institute when you shop at Amazon. Download our free mobile app. Rate the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Share our material around on social media. We've got all kinds of ways for you to try to get people interested in the Southern tradition. That's what our goal is. We've, we're in perilous times. I do have hope, though. I, I think sometimes people get so depressed and they think everything is going to collapse around them. Uh, I, I just don't see it that way. Uh, I think that there are good things happening, and as people do good things, we need to remember that. Now, of course, the, the system is structured against us, and um, there is no greater uh, <laughs> uh, you know, dis uh, despised person in America now than someone who really believes in the Southern tradition. I, I think that that's something that's um, you know, evident. Uh, even if you just say you like the Southern tradition, I mean, you're going to be called all kinds of names. It's 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 horrible what we're going through. But at the same time, and, and a lot of that is just misguided. Uh, at the same time, there's so much beauty in the Southern tradition, and that's what we try to do at the Institute. We try to get you interested in that. So much beauty in the Southern tradition that a lot of people love it. They just don't realize it. And, uh, and that's something that we try to to do on a regular basis at the Institute as well. So our first Zoom conference is going to be on the war in but we've got all kinds of cool stuff coming up. I know of at least two in 2021. 
We're going to do one on John C. Calhoun, which is going to be fantastic. We're going to do one on the Confederate Constitution, which is going to be fantastic. And we've got a lot of other great stuff in store, too. We've got a lot of ideas out there, and these are going to be a lot of fun because it's just going to take a weeknight, maybe an hour or two of your time. You will have a scholar on. They'll make a presentation. There'll be an opportunity to ask questions, uh, a moderated opportunity to ask questions. So we'll have a lot of uh, great interaction, and, of course, you're going to be able to get good content and support the Institute at the same time. So it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for you. Uh, in, a, in addition to our in-person conferences, which we have some plans for those as well. So 2021 is going to be great. I know I spent a few minutes here talking about the Institute. 2021 is going to be great. Just like 2020 was, I thought, a pretty good year for the Institute, even though our conferences were were uh, scaled back because of COVID-19. Uh, we still had a lot of great stuff go on. And of course, we've got another <clears throat> we've got another video coming up. That will be out probably within the next week or so on uh, the Gettysburg Address a video by yours truly, another one of these six-minute videos. We've got a lot of this stuff going on. We really want to expand our reach educationally, and the way we do it is through your donations. So, again, if you like this stuff, if you believe in the Southern tradition, if you can just give up one cup of coffee a month, that's $60 if you go to a fancy coffee place. That's $60 a year. If you could just do that, uh, you would help us do everything we can do at the Institute. I mean, it's it's a... Uh, you can donate monthly, annually, one-time gift. We appreciate anything you can do. All right, with all that said, we're actually going to go back. The theme of this week was, was rather interesting. We're going to go back to a great lie because nowadays we're talking about lies. What's going on in American society? Do we have a lie with the election? Do we have a fraudulent election? Do we have all these things? We know that uh, the U.S. government has often been behind great big lies. So is the U.S. military. I mean, this is well known. And I'm going to start with the piece that was published on Thursday by Jim Kibler. Jim Kibler is a great uh, Abbeville Institute scholar, a retired English professor at University of Georgia, written a number of really good books. Uh, but he wrote this piece in 2015, and it was delivered at a uh, symposium in uh, Winsboro, South Carolina, on the burning of Columbia, South Carolina. And the title of the piece is The Great Lie and the Real Controversy. You see, because what this gets to the heart of is the fact that the, the central authority has been lying about things for decades, a century or more, about the causes of the war, the purpose of the war, the outcome of the war, and you have people conspiring with them. I mean, unknowingly at times. I think there's there's no uh, you know CD uh, you know uh, chat room somewhere or correspondence. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to lie about this. I don't think they know they're doing it. Sometimes they just do it because they think this is the real story. And this is the this is the problem with American society. You see, what is at stake in 2020 is history. It's it's the American memory. Confederate monuments, Confederate symbols, all of that. It's the American memory. And if the American memory is, is erased, if those things are done away with, then we lose, we have historical amnesia. We lose part of our memory. And that part of our memory is the part of our memory that keeps the central authority in check. It's what provides the Jeffersonian underpinnings, the Republican lowercase r underpinnings 
of American society. If you erase that, you embrace things like lockdowns. You embrace things like, ah, there was a 150% voter participation in this district. You embrace that. You think that's just perfectly natural. You embrace the deep state. You embrace unlimited wars. You embrace all those things. Because at the end of the day, if there's no opposition to it, well, then you have to believe those things. Whether some of these things are true or not, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with all of this stuff? I, I don't know where we go from here. But if you, but if you, if you eliminate the Jeffersonian tradition in American society, if you get rid of it, if you create that type of amnesia, well, you make it easier for the Hamiltonians, for the central bankers, for the war party, for all of those people, essentially for the coalition that's been around since 1865, destroying the original federal republic. You make it easier for those people to continue to do it. Remember, Barack Obama said in 2009, very open, we're going to continue remaking America. For all the things that Obama is, he's very, I think, open at times about what he really wanted to do. Now, he would he lies just like anyone else about he he, he participates in historical revision, revisionism of his own legacy. But the fact is, in 2009, he was very open about what he wanted to do. And I mentioned in a letter I sent out, a donor letter, to try to get you to donate a little cash to the Institute, uh, that... Pat Cadell, who was a Southerner, was behind Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. It's the same slogan that Jimmy Carter used, essentially, in the 1979 Crisis of Confidence speech. He didn't say it, but that's what he was saying. This is the same thing. It's a Jeffersonian understanding of American society. It's an, it was an attack on consumerism, on the establishment, on the deep state. It was an attack on those things. It was an attack on the, on the elites of American society. Not the average American, not that person, but the elites in American society. And you see, this is who Donald Trump has ruffled their feathers. Donald Trump's certainly not perfect in any way, of the, any stretch of the imagination. Trump has got major problems. But that Southern Jeffersonian Republican tradition is on display every time we talk about uh, undermining the legitimacy of something that we think should be legitimate. And if you believe the great lie, then it becomes palatable for you to accept just about everything, I mean, including the Pledge of Allegiance and all these things that we do. And I want to start with this piece because it's about the burning of Columbia, South Carolina. And Jim Kibler points out, I mean, this is controversy only for people that are already invested in the great lies. So let me read this. It's very short. I love this little piece. He says, By preface, I have one common-sense comment on the manufactured controversy over who burned Columbia, an army who tortures and pillages every town and hamlet from South Carolina to North Carolina is not going to skip the wealthiest and most hated place on its route. It would take an imbecile to be persuaded of this, especially in light of hundreds of eyewitness accounts showing the matter in details of the intentional burning of the city and Sherman's own final admission. This is interesting because we've got people sworn after, and we just apply it to something that a uh, current controversy. And we're going to talk about that with Clyde Wilson in his piece, but a current controversy. Uh, it's the current controversy is I mean, was, the, was there election fraud in 2020? 
Some people say yes, some people say no. We have affidavits, sworn affidavits, people saying it was. We have security experts saying these voting machines and everything had problems. So we've got a lot of circumstantial evidence that maybe something was going on here. There's no smoking gun, necessarily. We don't know. And who knows, maybe 100 years from now, someone will actually find some evidence that this actually took place. If it all goes through and it all works, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I don't. But just like this, there's eyewitness accounts, people. This is what happened. But you can't believe that. Those people are wrong. So Kipler says, the only controversy I see is over the motives of the people today who would call the source of the burning a controversy. It's controversial to say there's something going on in society. That's controversial. It's controversial because the establishment, the people who run the show, have said it's controversial. But see, a lot of Americans are waking up to this. They don't believe them anymore. They don't believe them at all. Why would they? Why would they believe them when you have all, we have examples like this throughout history? Why would you believe the establishment? Why would you believe the people that want to send your sons and daughters now, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, whoever it is, send these people off to war in the Middle East? Why would you believe these people? Why would you do it? He says, why do they persist in the face of fact? The first question we might think to ask is, what do these people have to gain? Giving answers to that question might indeed be controversial. I'll state the real controversy by listing a few possibilities for why the person persons persist. He says, these people who tell the big lie do so because of one or a combination of the following. One, their jobs depend on it, especially in a government, journalist, or university position. Job security is no small matter today, and I think this is true. You look at what's happening, and we're going to talk about this with the boyd Cathy piece. Why do people pile on on controversies? Why do they do it? Why do they pile on on one side? Well, because they know they got to keep a job. I mean, that that's certainly a driving, motivating factor. You, you lose your job. How do you provide for your family? I mean, these are big considerations. Number two, they have been taught in a dumbed-down anti-Southern public, that is, government school, where it's fashionable to bash the South and force Marxist interpretations, or dismiss history altogether unless it furthers the prevailing agenda. Three, they are dishonest at heart and think that distorting the truth is cute. The telltale sign is a sarcastic attitude and a sly look out of the corner of the eye. Four, they support the big government lie that U.S. policy has never resulted in anything but the noblest deeds done for the noblest reasons. They must further... The myth of American, particularly Northern, righteousness. Five, they are aware that the American empire is built on the base of the big lie of noble action, including the greatness of Lincoln, and that any crack in that base would eventually bring down the edifice faster than the Soviet's wall in Berlin. Or number six, they know their ancestors were guilty of war crimes and do not want to be descended from arsonists, thieves, thugs, murderers, and rapists. Of these six reasons, I would be most sympathetic with the last were it not for the holier-than-thou hypocrisy of these descendants of arsonists, thieves, thugs, murderers, and rapists. The descendants of Puritans, now thoroughly secular, still have to have guilt, but the guilt must always be someone else's. And I think this is a nice summary of what we're dealing with in the people that are on the left and the right, saying that anyone who doesn't believe the standard interpretation what Tom Woods calls a three-by-five three five index card of allowable opinion. Anybody that has that, I mean, it's you are somehow controversial. For simply asking questions, you're controversial. 
And that's what's happening right now in 2020. We're seeing it before our own eyes with two big controversies. One is COVID. The other is the election. Regardless of how these things work out, people that are asking questions are seen as controversial. Is it not the Jeffersonian position to ask questions about central authority and who has that authority, who has legitimacy, who has these things? This is certainly the American position. It's what we've based our entire society upon. But when you take down symbols of defiance, and I remember years ago there was a a little twit who wrote for uh, Time magazine about Confederate monuments. And more importantly, it was the Maryland State song. And then it went to Confederate monuments, and I responded to him. Um, the fact is, the man said it. These are symbols of defiance. You can't have defiance to the central authority or to the standard narrative because that makes you controversial. And no one is allowed to be controversial anymore unless you're controversial on a far-left position. Then it's okay because then you're hip and you're, uh, you're asking important questions. But if you're controversial on the right, if you're controversial about defiance to the center, the defiance of the standard opinion, well, I mean, that's... That's just dissidence. You can't have that. You can't do that. And this is where Clyde Wilson talks about the Grand Alliance. He says, The pattern for modern American politics was set by Lincoln and his cronies in the 1850s to 70s, although it took an immense war against other Americans to make it stick. The pattern involved making the federal government, not the Union or the Constitution, the center of power and the fount of goods. And good. This meant in everyday terms that the victory of Lincoln's Republicans established control by those who regard the government as a machine to make money for themselves, covered by a blasphemous religion of Americans as the chosen people who are to lead all mankind into what a later Republican would call global democracy. Until Lincoln, there had been a strong Jeffersonian-Jacksonian countercurrent, preference for low tariff, avoidance of public debt, limited government expenditure, dispersed power, distrust of moralistic movements, and patriotic but non-entanglement sentiment in regard to affairs beyond the continent. There was some sense, and always dominant, but understood and sometimes prevailing, of a public good. You will find in Confederate statements appeals to this former good faith of peaceful preservation of the larger good as previously understood. In Union statements, you will find appeals to power and righteousness that would have made no sense to Americans before the 1848 revolutions in Europe. You see, this is what I'm talking about, the great lie. You have to believe this stuff to make the modern work. Lincoln's unseemly combination of control of the government by big capital alliance with occasional irresponsible reform crusades is where we are now. It is the deep state, and it is the deep state that is sovereign. We find the ever-increasing control of great capital joined at the hip with the revolutionary crusade of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Under the old dispensation, we would not have entered into international imperialism in the late 19th century, or the senseless bloodshed of World War I to make the world safer democracy. We would not have allowed the government to permanently deform a natural American society by the Great Society. We would not have to listen to Joe Biden blithely promise that with him, the government will soon make us all equal, prosperous, and happy while his minions kill and loot. Donald Trump disagreed only marginally. Under the Lincoln regime, American, American issues never have been and never can be decided on the basis of the public good. The genuine thing does not exist in American discourse. Many are rightly concerned about threats to the environment, but in addressing this matter, we are confined to debates with the regime. 
On the one hand, the power of capital, on the other, the irresponsible and revolutionary tree huggers. It is theoretically possible that a public good approach of responsible stewardship, not controlled by this division, might be found. It cannot happen in the regime that governs. Medical care is a continuing concern for us all. The cost of drugs and insurance threaten most of us. The quality of care is often marvelous and always potentially so, but it declines in the nightmare of government bureaucracy of a semi-socialized system and the bottomless expense of serving millions of wastrels and aliens. The COVID fraud should have convinced any awake American of the corruption of the federal medical bureaucracy. Once again, we have the collaboration of the money interests that can, only, that can easily buy Congress with, who, with claims for universal control and benevolence without regard to cost. Regarding foreign affairs, we have the same dilemma. We are governed by a combination of vast vested interests that will never freely give up their immense purchase of the public purse, combined, as in the Lincoln regime, with fervid delusions that the U.S. government must and can punish all in the world who refuse to obey their good and right. It is theoretically possible to devise a prudent policy of national interest in regard to the world, but it will never happen and our country will plunge forward to the disaster that always awaits the deluded. The two sides of the national character that I described are dominant. The rest of us don't count and haven't for a very long time. The two really are one, the same Puritan penchant for money-grubbing and moral imperialism that was implanted in Massachusetts in the earliest days, amplified by European socialism and minority demands. It is said that the character is fate, and this national character will in the long run decide our fate. This is the same thing Jim Kibler was saying about the burning of Columbia. And so you bring this forward, you bookend it. Boyd Cathy had a really marvelous piece on Fox News or Faux News. Wondering aloud how this happens. Well, because the people at Fox News are journalists. And as Jim Kibler pointed out, they need to keep the coffers full. They need to make money. They need to appeal to the state. Why? Because the state is going to be their master at one point or another. And so they'll do it. And Donald Trump, marginally, as Clyde Wilson says, represents some opposition to that. But what's really at stake is the people who represent an opposition to that. The people who don't believe anymore, who are starting not to believe the narrative from what Clyde Wilson called the deep state. They don't believe it anymore. And why? again, why would they? Why would they believe it? So when you look at Boyd Cathy, you talk about Victor Davis Hanson. We actually had, had somebody email me, you know, after reading that piece and saying, I like Victor. Victor Davis Hanson's not a neocon. Are you sure? Victor Davis Hanson is a neocon of neocons. The man hates the South. The man has written countless articles blasting this Jeffersonian strain of American conservatism. And you could say, well, that's not conservative. It is. It is. It's the American strain of defiance to central authority. It's Jeffersonian republicanism. It's all it is, as Clyde Wilson points out here. And at our last conference in October, we had a panel discussion of his piece that was published in 1969 on the Jeffersonian origins of American conservatism, a piece that people panned in 1969 because they didn't like the fact that Thomas Jefferson was being called a conservative. You can't do that. Jefferson's not a conservative according to these people. He's a leftist. Franklin Roosevelt liked Thomas Jefferson. How can you say Jefferson's a conservative? Well, I mean, I think clearly he was. And his belief in real federalism and the things that limited central power. 
Victor Davis Hanson is part of this right-wing, quote-unquote, group of people who believe in strong central authority, a Hamiltonian vision of American society rather than a Jeffersonian. And there are certainly parts of Hamilton's vision that are right. I mean, his distrust of mass democracy is certainly a, a, an interesting position. We see it on display right now. But the fact is, Hamilton's machinations, constitutional machinations, caused a lot of the problems that we see in American society. And of course, with that, and with the establishment, you get the elevation of people like John Brown to a position of cult-like worship. I mean, John Brown, as Neil Kumar points out on Tuesday's piece, it was a book essay on Otto Scott's History of the Secret Six, which is a really good book. I mean, people like Russell Kirk and others, uh, you know, blurbed it back when it was published. I mean, it's it's good. Uh, the left hates this book. They hate this book because it exposes the moral depravity, not only of John Brown, but the six people who paid for him to go and slaughter Americans to act as a terrorist. And that's what he was doing. But because of the establishment, because of the acceptable opinion, John Brown has to be worshipped by the left and the right. I mean, if you asked a neocon like Victor Davis Hanson, John Brown's a good guy. John Brown should be celebrated. John Brown, a man that committed homicide in Pottawatomie Creek. Homicide. When do we celebrate homicide? But we do with John Brown. John Brown was elevated to the status of Jesus Christ by people like Emerson. I mean, this is sad. It's a sad commentary on modern American society that someone like John Brown would even be considered anything but a terrorist. But this is where we are because the people that opposed him are now morally depraved devils. That's what the South has become. You see, this is the, the crazy, I think in many ways, mental instability of the people that are pushing this SJW woke position. of It's unsustainable. You can't do it. You can't really have society like this. And so then you look at Terry Halsey's piece on Friday, Secession, the Point of the Spear, and this idea of decentralization has been around in America for a very long time. It's something that people are talking about now. We're talking about decentralization. We're talking about ways to confront this modern monstrosity. Ways to confront it. Ways to think about dealing with it. Whether it's regionalism, whether it's federalism, whether it's outright separation... I mean, these are things, the 10th Amendment, these are things that people are thinking about now. And they're thinking about them now as the part of the American tradition. Again, but those symbols, those Confederate symbols, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, the common Confederate soldier at the courthouse, those symbols represent American defiance. Defiance to the center. And the people that made speeches of those dedication ceremonies said as much. They said it. It's defiance to the center. It's defiance to the centralization of American society and the Lincoln regime following that. That's what's at stake in these Confederate monuments.
And so as Halsey points out, I mean, there's a review of decentralization, how Europe went through it, all the decentralization movements in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, it's all there. The American tradition is decentralization. It's why I have a class at my own academy, McClanahan Academy, Secession and American Tale. This is an American tradition, but yet it's um, now called controversial. It's, you can't talk about it. Americans openly talked about decentralization throughout history until after the war. Then it became controversial. That's the problem with modern American society and what's known as the deep state or the Lincolnian regime. And you see the neoconservatives like Victor Davis Hanson, those at Fox News, those that push the union, you know, self-righteous moral crusade against the South and who say things like the dummy crats and all this kind of stuff. I mean, these people that are fully invested in the Lincoln myth, the Lincoln myth, the self-righteous myth of American history. They're fully invested in it. And so because they're fully invested in it, they're going to go along with whatever the center tells them to do. And I think there's some certain, you know, certainly a cult of personality around Donald Trump, also Barack Obama. I mean, I think that has something to do with it as well. These modern politicians that are in reality demagogues, all of them, all of them, Obama is, Trump is, Joe Biden will be, though Joe Biden, if he's not on a teleprompter, it's sadly. I mean, watching Joe Biden, who turns 78, 78 today, watching Joe Biden, uh, it's, it's actually sad. He's, he's lost some of his mental acuity, and it's, it's sad to watch, knowing full well that that man, if he should win, will be you know, on display a lot. It's really sad to watch. I don't think there's much of a call to personality around Biden, but I do think there might be one around Kamala Harris. Biden is maybe kind of the last gasp of a president that doesn't have a call to personality. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's interesting all this stuff works out and what's going to happen with it and where we go with this. What does the Southern tradition offer for all of this? Well, it offers the Jeffersonian response to everything. We need to trim spending, cut taxes, limit our involvement in foreign wars, think about political decentralization, think about state and local solutions to problems, as Clyde points out, environmental problems, healthcare problems. These are all problems. I mean, these are things that, yeah, there, there's certainly an issue there. But what are we going to do about it? Do we believe in the center, which has lied to us con constantly? Or do we look for local people in communities? This is the Jeffersonian image. Communities that come up with these things. People working together that may not always agree on everything, but yet they're, they're in their own community. These are neighbors. These are people that you know. That's where you start working out issues. So, hope you enjoyed this week in review at the Abbey of Institute. Until next time, good day.